play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Cheech Marin. Cheech is one half of Cheech and Chong, the epic comedy duo famous for films like Up in Smoke. This year is Cheech and Chong's 50th anniversary, and you can see them at San Francisco Sketchfest at the end of this month for a special tribute show. But of course, Cheech has his own independent career. He plays Jennifer Lopez's dad in the new film Shotgun Wedding out next week, and he stars in a new Woody Harrelson film called Champions out in March. But if you ask the average person what they know about Cheech and Chong, chances are they're going to bring up smoking pot. So I chat with Chef Lori Wolf, who has been called the Martha Stewart of edibles. So if you're listening to the show with a little one, and this is a topic that you don't want them to hear, this is your official warning to come back to this episode when they're not around. Cheech's last meal comes from the iconic, best-selling Silver Palette Cookbook, a book that both changed the way Americans ate in the 1980s and got me scolded. You have a copy of the book? No, I don't have a copy of it. I've looked through it at other people's Rachel. houses. My mom probably had Your it. Your mommy might have Well, yeah. okay. Gee, yeah. I know. I'll chat with the editor of the Silver Palette Cookbook, Suzanne Rafer, later in the show. But first, my conversation with Cheech Marin. Let's start at the very beginning of your life because you were kind of born to like food. Tell everybody where your name Cheech comes from. Cheech is short for chicharron, and chicharrones are, are uh, deep-fried pig skins or akin to Mexican potato chips, you know, they're real crispy, and they're kind of come dried and shriveled, or not shriveled up, like curled up, and so when I was a little baby and I was brought home from the hospital, my uncle Bono looked into the crib and he said, ay, parece un chicharron, you know, I mean, it looks like a little chicharron, so that became my name in the family, because everybody in my family had at least three or four names. The nickname was Chicharron. You were a little crispy baby. <laughs> I was B baby. Cheech was born and raised in L.A., but he was living in Vancouver, Canada, when he met the man who would become his comedy partner, Tommy Chong. How did you guys meet and how did you take your show on the road? And, you know, from the beginning, uh-huh. was your comedy about smoking pot? Uh, no, not at all. Some a little bit, but we met in Vancouver. Long story short, uh, he was starting a improvisational theater company in a topless bar. The worst part of town, Maine and Pender. It was like it was a tough, tough part of town. His family were, were, were running this a nightclub that he entrusted to their care when he went on the road before Cheech and Chong. And when he came back, they had turned it into Vancouver's first topless club. I had Chinese food, so it was good. And <laughs> it's a good combination. <laughs> yeah. But the dancers, he turned them into actresses. You're not uh, strippers anymore. You're actresses. Oh, okay. So you get paid less. Oh, oh, okay. He started them doing these skits, and I got introduced to him. I convinced him that I was this great improv actor from, from L.A., and I improved a resume immediately, who I worked with. And then he goes, oh, that sounds great. So he hired me as a writer. If he was hiring strippers to be actors, I mean, your resume didn't have to be that good. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, hey, you picked that up right away. <laughs> Absolutely. It didn't have to, you know. And so I joined the group as a first as a writer and then as a writer actor. And after about nine months, the troupe kind of slowly disbanded. Tommy and I stayed together as a duos. And our, our initial conception was that we were going to be a band that did comedy. And our first gig was at a Battle of the Bands in Vancouver, which we won and didn't play a note. We just came out and did these skits. And the band was there, you know, they're ready to play. And we never cued them. And we won the whole thing, you know. And so uh, the bass player said, oh, well, where's our next gig, boss? I said, well, there ain't going to be no next gig for y'all. You know, <laughs> it's just me and Tommy. And then we came to L.A. and, and, and tried our luck. So how did Pot squeeze its way into it? Because that has been your legacy for the past 50 years, amongst many other things, of course. Yeah, we were kind of brave enough to talk about what everybody was doing. Wake up and smoke all day and you know, kind of, <laughs> and then wake up again and do it again. Uh, it was just part of the community. So we're kind of reflecting on that. And the funny things that happened in that, thing. Uh, you know, we oh, maybe only about 5% of our material in total had to do with marijuana, but it was thing that, that popped out because we were we were dangerous because we were so innocent <laughs> and that's how we got away with a lot of stuff do you remember the first time you smoked pot yes i do i was a latecomer but uh, uh because my dad was a policeman you know so like I, I valued my life more than experimenting with drugs and if you're a smoke pot that'll be the death of you caused by me you know <laughs> um, <laughs> And so uh, it was, it was uh, my first year in college, and I was I was living in this apartment with a bunch of roommates, and I came home one night, and there was a party going on. There was always parties going on in my apartment. It was really smoky, and my roommate, who was standing there, said, what's going on here? And he says, here, this. And he hands me this joint, and I said, what's this? He says, it's, it's a joint. Said, what's a joint? It's a, a weed. What, what? Marijuana. Oh, this is marijuana? Well, yeah, take a take a hit. So, well, I'm on my own here. I'm off the lease. I'm in college. All right, let me see what's happening. <sighs> Took a deep, went around, and by the time the joint got back to me, I was high. You know, and like I was having the best time of my life. Everybody was happy. There was music. I was hearing things in music I'd never heard before, and and it was a, a, a eye opening and ear opening and sensual opening uh, experience for me. And like, oh. Wow, this is good. That's it, baby. What are your favorite stoner snacks? Uh, stoner snacks, you know, whatever is in, 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 in reach, you know, when I'm watching TV. And the later I stay up, the hungrier I, I get, so I try to go to bed earlier. I like chips a lot, all kinds of chips. I like those Maui sweet onion potato chips, and, you know, I try to stay away from all that, but that's what I like. And popcorn, and we have a really good popcorn uh Fryer or whatever they call them. Popcorn popper. Why do people get the munchies after they smoke pot? Research says THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana, interacts with some of the most primitive areas in the brain. The part that regulates emotions, appetite, smell, and taste. Gary Wank, who is director of neuroscience undergraduate programs at The Ohio State University, told CNN that the neurons that allow us to be satiated 
are taken over by THC, so we don't know when to stop eating. THC does all kinds of things in our brains. It can promote the release of a hormone that stimulates hunger, it releases dopamine, which makes eating way more enjoyable, and lowers inhibitions. Portland, Oregon chef Lori Wolf has been smoking pot since she was 15 years old, but she didn't start cooking and baking with it until she was much older. I was diagnosed with a form of epilepsy. I worked with my doctor and I went off the medicine I was on for epilepsy and gradually on to cannabis like every day, a small dose. And I have been seizure free for like seven years now. It's unbelievable. So I realized when I got my license that the edibles out there were dreadful, but nothing was delicious. A longtime chef, Lori started making her own with high quality ingredients. She has since written five cannabis cookbooks, started an edibles company called Lori and Mary Jane, and been called the Martha Stewart of edibles. I tried to be a little more sophisticated and appeal to the boutique wine people. I'm sort of seeing a lot of that crate and barrel set. People who have money, who join wine clubs, want to get into cannabis. So I'll do a cherry crostata. I infuse both the cherry and the pastry. I do pizzas. In our books, we teach how to make coconut oil, infused butter, infused honey, infused heavy cream, infused sugar, tinctures as well, so people can infuse however they want. The last time I ate pot was 2001. I hallucinated. I was afraid of the dark. It was scary. I never wanted to feel that way again. Back in the day when someone made pot brownies at home, infusing the oil or butter in the batter with weed, they had no idea how potent those brownies were going to turn out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are not alone. I would say 75% of the people I deal with had that experience, you know, the brownie. Now there are tools you can use to determine how many milligrams of THC are in your butter or your oil or your tincture. There's a device called a T-Check. It's a THC potency infusion tester, and it basically allows you to have your own teeny tiny lab at home. And if you're like me and you don't know how many milligrams you should be eating. What I suggest is you get an edible uh, at a dispensary so you know it's been tested and you eat either two and a half or five milligrams of THC. Mostly five is going to be at the most like a glass of wine. So like you eat the five in the evening, no plans to go out anywhere and just see what happens. Nothing might happen. If nothing happens, don't eat anymore. Do the same thing the next night, but double the potency. And from working low to high, you'll find your potency. And when you find it, it's like you don't need to go high. You don't need to see what it's like to go higher. There are chefs across the country doing quasi-legal cannabis-infused multi-course fine dining pop-ups. I spoke with one of those chefs, and he said there is still a big stigma associated with pot within certain cultures and circles. Cheech himself might be helping to erase the stoner stigma. He was the very first winner of Celebrity Jeopardy. You won Celebrity Jeopardy twice. You won yeah. for the first time, let's see, 1992. And then in 2010, you beat Anderson Cooper. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes <laughs> those things happen. <laughs> and he was traumatized by it. Really? <laughs> oh, he was shocked. She's just killing me in this game. <laughs> like, But he became a friend. 
he'll give me a call and I'll be on his show. And he's always very deferential and intros it. Well, the cheech bear and the big stoner, blah, 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 whipped my butt. <laughs> so the great thing about the whole Jeopardy, because I was born to be on that show, there's only one first. I mean, you can win Jeopardy 27 times, mm. but there's only one first guy. I was the first guy to win Celebrity Jeopardy. And you can have all the PhDs you want. Why do you say that you were born to do it? Because I was raised in this group of cousins that we were very academic, AP classes. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Cheech shares his last meal. He talks about what he's cooking for dinner tonight, and we'll learn the history of the Silver Palette Cookbook, the recipes that took 1982 by storm. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Cheech only lived in Canada a few years, but it made a big impact on his life. He met Tommy Chong, and he learned to cook while working in hotel kitchens in Banff. I'm the cook in the house, and and my wife is thank God she she doesn't mind cleaning up because you know that's a, my least favorite thing to do, and, and we work really great together. But my first question to her in the morning is, "What do you want for dinner?" Yeah, so I'm just waking up. I, I want coffee first, you know. But I I love cooking. I mean, it's a really big part of my life. What are you making for dinner tonight? For dinner? Oh, glad you asked. Uh, I'm making machaca. Oh, nice. You know machaca? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never order it, but I always see it on the menus. You never order it? No, I've never ordered it. Okay, the next time you go and you see it on the menu, order it. Have it by itself. You can have it with eggs in the morning. You can, you know, roll it in a tortilla and it's the best burrito. A machaca burrito is, solves yeah. all problems. This is the second time that I've been scolded in this episode. Suzanne, if you're listening, I already requested the Silver Palette cookbook at my library. And Cheech, if you're listening, I still haven't tried machaca. All right, let's get to the big question. What would your last meal be? Well, you know, I thought about that. It's a Spanish dish called chicken marbella, named after Marbella, which is in in Spain. But it's a North African Spanish dish because it combines plums and olives and capers and that sweet and sour 
kind of deal, and it's baked chicken with all these with all these elements in it, you know. And uh, and the secret is in the marinade, which you do it, you know, overnight. And then and it's the easiest just to make. At the end, you put brown sugar over it and wine. It really makes this dish, and 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 then you, and you stick it in the oven and you bake it for. I, I found it in. I'm going to get a credit or a credit to, to do here. I found it in the Silver Palette Cookbook. Oh, a classic. Yeah, it is a class. I went to a dinner party one night, and and the hostess served this dish. And we were all sitting around the table, and I took my first bite of that. And it's one of those moments where time stops, you know, and I go... How long has this been going on? You know, this is the best thing I've ever tasted in my life. And and so, and I asked, well, how did you do it? Oh, it's chicken my brain. You find it in the, in the silver pellet recipe. Went home that night and looked it up. It was really a life-changing experience. You know, it was like the first time I ever had a medium rare steak. You know, because Mexicans didn't eat steak. You know, they had pieces of meat to make everything go farther, you know, but they never sat down and had a, a whole steak. And so when I was, I think in eighth grade, I was, or my Boy Scout troop was sponsored by the Optimist Club, you know, one of like the Lions Club or the Kiwanis and the Optimist Club. And they ran this oratorical contest you know, speech contest. Of, and, I, and I won the oratorical contest, but it was at a restaurant. They all met at a restaurant, you know, and I got presented with a steak in front of me and and it was medium rare. And I just, okay, how do you do this? You cut out a piece. And I took about, God, and it was another one of those, how long has this been going on too? I've never, I've never had a medium rare steak. It was, and it was like, you heard angels. <laughs> I think so many of us have had that experience because, you know, my mom would cook meat to death. So when I was a kid, I thought that I didn't like steak because you'd be chewing and chewing and chewing yeah. and chewing and chewing. You they used to like, sole their shoes with it, man, after <laughs> Yeah, it was a Charlie Chaplin moment for sure. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> Do you have something on the side to soak yeah, up the juice? I usually make it with couscous. Oh, okay, yeah. Because it's a Middle Eastern dish. I mean, yeah. that, that combination of sour and sweet... Uh, yeah. It is, you know, they have it in Chinese and they and they call it sweet and sour. But uh, Marbella is like, is like, and everybody <laughs> likes it. And you make it with, with dark meat. Damn. For his last meal, Cheech wants chicken Marbella from the Silver Palette Cookbook. The chicken is marinated overnight with prunes, green Spanish olives, capers, red wine vinegar, olive oil, an entire head of garlic, and a bunch of herbs. And then the next day, before you bake it, you add white wine and brown sugar. The original recipe calls for four whole chickens, two and a half pounds each, and serves more than 10 people. How popular was this book? Very. <laughs> That's Suzanne Rafer, editor of the Silver Palette Cookbook. She's retired now. But Suzanne spent decades at Workman Publishing as an executive editor and director of Cookbook Publishing. The Silver Palette Cookbook was written by Sheila Lukens and Julie Rosso in 1982, and it has since sold two and a half million copies. But before there was a cookbook, the Silver Palette was a popular gourmet takeout shop opened by Sheila and Julie in the late 70s in Manhattan's Upper West Side. It was the size of a peanut. And in this teeny weeny shop, they served wonderful uh, salads and soups and dressings and hot dishes. They were extremely popular. 
We're so used to being able to get everything to go now. But in the late 70s in New York, was this common to have a shop like this? Not at all. I mean, there was A-bars near their location, this enormous food store that was mostly bagels and locks and Jewish foods and little silver palette. <laughs> the silver palette introduced New Yorkers to things like raspberry vinaigrette and sun-dried tomatoes, foods that were new and exciting at that time. And the shop was extremely popular with working women who wanted to put gourmet meals on the table, but didn't have time to cook. They were the new cuisine. Um, Barbara Kafka, who's a very well-known food writer, called it the book that changed the way America cooks. And it really did. It brought American recipes to the fore. It sort of made Frenchie-style recipes more American, changed the way America cooks. What were some of the most popular dishes from the cookbook? Well, obviously chicken marbella, but the gougere, the cheese straws, chicken, Mediterranean chicken salad. Oh, gosh, wonderful vinaigrettes and and salmon mousse as an appetizer, uh, on and on. Sheila and Julie created Chicken Marbella. The prunes and olives were inspired by Moroccan and Spanish cuisine, and it is easily their most famous dish. It's delicious, absolutely delicious. It uses unexpected, at the time, for sure, ingredients. I mean, prunes. I mean, prunes basically, you know, were thought of as, uh, you know, bathroom aids rather than uh, anything serious. And, And in fact, prunes themselves... I believe we're trying to to uh, change the way they were perceptive. You know, they were calling themselves uh, dried plums. They're still <laughs> trying to change the image. I, I actually spoke to the prune board a couple years ago, and they're like, we're still at it. <laughs> Darn it. I mean, Sheila <laughs> took those prunes and gave them, you know, new fame. They are wonderful. Their texture, their sweetness, they play off beautifully against these Spanish olives. And capers. So you've got sweet, you've got salt, you've got a little tart and chicken, which is inexpensive, sort of a great palate for all these flavors. And it's given a lot of pizzazz uh, in Chicken Marbella. And Chicken Marbella is like the company dish. I mean, I'm still making it. It's easy. It feeds a gazillion. Everybody likes it. In our current food obsessed world where you can get almost any kind of food or any kind of ingredient from almost every country in the world with the click of a mouse, it's hard to imagine that guacamole was considered exotic in the early 80s. Suzanne said the silver palette hit at the perfect time when people were starting to travel more and discovering foods from around the world. We were starting to explore and experiment in the 70s. Yes, no longer was it just Italian or Chinese or French. We were starting to get a little Mexican and and a little Indian restaurants. I mean, curry, my goodness, burritos and tacos and and guacamole, (laughs) eye openers. And with these discoveries, there was this desire to um, try some of this at home. There was also a sudden interest in all these new cooking appliances, the Cuisinart, you had to have a, a Le Creuset stew pot at least. People were redoing their kitchens. We needed to have something to cook. We wanted to cook not just meatloaf. And so there was a a progression. Silver palette sort of fit into that progression. I mean, you could take home food from there, but wouldn't it be fun to try and make it yourself? 
right, it's time for a break. But when we come back, Cheech talks about a Golden Girls spinoff that he was in. I had never heard of this before. And he shares his worst nightmare, which naturally involves food. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. A project that I hadn't heard about when I was researching you that I thought was really funny is The Golden Palace, a show that only lasted maybe a year. Uh, Tell everyone what The Golden Palace was. The Golden Palace was the year after B. Arthur left The Golden Girls. And so they were trying to reconfigure what was going to be the next step. And so they had the girls uh, buy a hotel. They would run a hotel. And I was the the chef. Uh, Don Cheadle was the manager. But I did it really because I wanted to work with Betty White Mm. all my life. Betty White was the very first person I ever saw on TV when I was, I don't know how old, five or six or whatever it is. She was 19. Do you remember what the show was? Oh, yeah. It was Al Jarvis Make Believe Ballroom. And it was kind of the West Coast uh, equivalent of American Bandstand. And uh, Betty White was this fresh-faced 19-year-old graduate of Beverly Hills High. It was just the cutest thing you ever saw. I really, she was the very first person I saw on TV. And I was in love with her from that moment, you know. And she was just smiley and funny and sexy. And like, you know, even to a little kid, there's something about this, this girl that's and then I had got a chance to work with her, and I jumped at it. You know, I mean, like to work with Betty White before you die, or before either of us dies. You know, yeah. just, and it was the best. I mean, it exceeded my expectations. We became very good friends. We talked every day, all day, and told each other secrets. You know, <laughs> and Ooh. she was just the best. I read this quote from you. You said, "My worst nightmare is I wake up and I'm a vegetarian." <laughs> It's it's a recurring nightmare, you know. I mean, it's like I'm a Mexican uh, derivation, you know, and uh, and uh, you know, Mexican vegetarian. That's the world's smallest minority group, you know. <laughs> there's not there's nothing. Yeah, it's it's in our bones, you know. It's in the DNA, and so it really is. It does scare me. I mean, I'll eat some vegetables, you know, as long yeah. as they're killed right and you know, cured or whatever they're. <laughs> However they harvest them. That is my biggest nightmare. You live in the desert part-time. Yeah. You are talking about catching a quail. Uh-huh. We live right next to the park, uh, the Joshua Tree National Park. I mean, it's like 50 yards away. 
And we have a lot of quail in our in our yard all the time. Quail, doves, all those kind of things. And I like quail. I like to eat them. Uh, but I didn't want to indiscriminately slaughter flocks of quail, you know. So I, I was trying to learn how to, to catch them, how to trap them, how to pluck them, and how to all, all those. And I'm reading the book to my to my wife, and she's on her phone, blah, 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 blah. And, and I'm saying, no, then you got to do this, and blah, blah, blah. So then we should get some quails. And she goes, I just ordered six. They'll be here Thursday. <laughs> and so six quail came from New Jersey, right? Quail. Oh, and they're the simplest things to cook, and that's the best way to cook them, you know. We eat quail and doves and pheasant, and and that's part of the things that I cook. But but it's a real temptation to kind of look at 150 quail marching around your your, your yard and, and not cook. <laughs> you get to be <laughs> not- a hunter-gatherer. I know. You know, when I first got out to the desert, I said, hey, I could live off the land out here, you know. The thing that I thought was really cool the first time I went to Joshua Tree was thinking, oh, my God, this is where Looney Tunes came from. This is the Roadrunner. Yeah, yeah, the Roadrunner. Cartoons. It looks exactly the same. Of course, all these cartoonists from L.A. were probably going out there on the weekends and it looks exactly like the Hanna-Barbera. The thing about Joshua Tree is, what do you do there? Uh, Nothing. You don't have to do anything. It's it's just like being immersed in a hot tub, you know. It's, all you have to do is be in the air. Kind of go in there and relax. And mm, It's like getting a, a spiritual and physical massage at the same time. And you have to do nothing. The less you do, the better. Mm. And it just was really refreshing and renewing for me, you know. And that was Cheech Marin's last meal. Go see the Cheech and Chong 50th anniversary tribute show at San Francisco Sketchfest. You can find more info and tickets in the show notes. Cheech, thank you so, so much. Uh, congratulations on 50 years and the films you have coming out. I mean, you have an amazing career still, and I'm so honored to get to meet you. Thank you very much. It was an honor doing your show, and I'm going back and cooking some more machaca. Nice. Bye, Cheech. <laughs> right. Have a good day. Bye-bye, honey. Bye. you be good. We did it. Cheech is the biggest collector of Chicano art in the world, and he donated 500 of his pieces to the Cheech Marin Center for Chicano Art and Culture at the Riverside Art Museum. It is called the Cheech on the outside of the museum in huge letters, the Cheech. The art looks amazing. It is right up my alley. I can't wait to go. Thanks to Lori Wolf. Lori and Mary Jane Edibles are available at more than 300 dispensaries. I mean, I really love smoking joints. But I also love eating edibles. The thing is, with edibles, you know, they're really fattening. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, when I'm trying to be good, I'm like, uh, I want to have two brownies tonight, but I think I'm going to, you know, buy a pre-roll. Thanks to Miguel Trinidad, co-founder of 99th Floor, and Suzanne Rafer, editor of the Silver Palette Cookbook and... What to Expect When You're Expecting. I titled that book and was editor of it from the very beginning. Your Last Meal is a Slide Down the Dinosaur Media production. This episode was produced and edited by me and mixed by Oscar-winning audio god Randy Torres. Theme music by Prom Queen. And if you want to stay connected, sign up for my newsletter. It's on Substack. You can find a link in the show notes. This is the only place that you will be alerted to contests that you could win, like the cookbook giveaway I did a few months ago, events like the cooking class I did on Zoom last month, and all kinds of other fun things. 
Follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell. Same on Facebook. And Your Last Meal is now an independent production. If you like the show and you feel moved to help out, you can make a donation through Substack. You can do a monthly donation, a yearly donation. It would really help to keep the show chugging along. Or you can support the show for free by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. You let me know when you're ready to start. I want you to be zen. Zen. Give me something to eat. Okay. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm trying to think because it's very hard to um, remember what happened when, especially when you're a person who smokes a lot of weed. Um, (laughs) An unreliable narrator, perhaps. Absolutely. (laughs) Really. I should like have a fact checking thing running alongside.